I'm good with you. You'll turn with me this morning to the book of Hebrews. We'll be looking in chapter 12 and one verse in particular before we launch out into some things that we use to try to explain the verse. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 12. Wherefore lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. If you wanted to put a title to what I'm going to try to present this morning is spiritual fatigue and victory over it. Spiritual fatigue and victory over it. Of course, we've read in the book of Hebrews, and the book of Hebrews is a book that, if you look at it in its totality, is probably one of the most practical books in our Bible. There's no question in my mind to whom this epistle was written. Holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. These are saved people that are being addressed. He doesn't shift gears during the letter and say, now I'm going to address the unsaved. He's addressing saved people, and you have to consider that when you consider all of the book. And there are difficult passages in the book of Hebrews that speak so forcefully about what the saint is to do. And if they don't do them, that there are consequences that are to be paid. That it makes one to think that he has shifted gears, that he has changed his audience. And he's speaking to the unsaved. He never changes. What he is telling us here in this brief passage is that the saints sometimes find themselves weary. And this is a, a condition that is not the ideal for the saint. He is encouraging those that are reading this letter that they are to take what steps are necessary, prescribe in the book to get out of that state of weariness. And there are provisions to do it. Of course, the book is maybe the most well-known for its Hall of Fame of Faith. In the 11th chapter, you have that, and I think it's insightful as you read through these characters and see how God describes what it is to live a life of faith where there's victory and uh, an absence of spiritual fatigue, that instance after instance are given to us of things that are done by faith that are miraculous in their nature. For example, Sarah is given strength to bear a son, and that son is born after she is past age. But this, we are told, takes place because of faith that she exercised, something extraordinary. And then in the latter part of the book of Hebrews chapter 11, you read it beginning in verse 32, these things are said about people that are unnamed. And what shall I more say for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, Stop the mouths of lions, quench the violence of fire, escape the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women received their dead raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they may obtain a better resurrection. And I read it quickly, but did you notice the pivot point? What he's showing here is all of these miraculous astounding things that occur by these people that are walking by faith. But the pivot point now is this, that there are others that have nothing like that in their life, 
and yet they are too walking by faith. They're tortured. They don't accept deliverance that they might attain a better resurrection. And then he goes on in verse 36, and others have a trial or had a trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted, they were slain with a sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth, and these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. The point about reading this is that it is not a definition of victorious living for you to be always conquering, visibly so, those things that are hardships and difficulties in life. Sometimes it is living by faith to be a person who goes about and destitute with sheepskins and goatskins and wanders about in the dens and the caves of the earth and the wilderness, but you can still be victorious in those difficulties. There is no necessity for us to be spiritually weary. We can always be living by faith regardless of our circumstances. And this is what the, uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews is encouraging us to do. Well, it's one thing to tell us to do something. It's quite another thing to tell us how to do something. Oftentimes when parents are telling their children to do things at a certain age, you tell them to do it. They ask why. It's not important for them to know why. You withhold from them the why. But the Lord doesn't deal with us that way. He tells us you're not to live like this, spiritually weary, fatigued. But I'm going to tell you how you can live above that weariness. How that you can overcome this fatigue. And it begins in verse 1 of chapter 12. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. That's the very first thing. Hebrews 11 is designed to give us some encouragement when we live our lives. Look back at the past. Look at what God has done. And as that old song goes, what he's done for others, he'll do for you. Look back upon those witnesses. And then he says, there's something else that you can do. You can lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. Weariness in the journey is often caused by us carrying weights that we don't need to carry. There are two things mentioned here. There are weights and there is the sin. It is the sin. It is particular sin. The weights, I think, are amoral. There's not necessarily anything wrong with the weight. It's just that it is a weight, and it hinders us from walking in a way that the Lord would have us to walk. He has the best for us, and we're not experiencing the best because of some type of weight. We're holding on to it. It's taking a place that God alone should take. They tell me that there's a famous painting. I've never seen it, but I'll take the person's word that described it, of, a, of an individual who painted uh, a young child, a young boy, who was playing with a toy, and the artist was able to depict the toy 
that had been in the boy's hands and you knew it by virtue of where the, the toy was in the painting, the toy had been in the boy's hands and it was falling from his hands and he was looking up and when he was looking up, you were saying, now why did this little boy who certainly enjoyed this toy, why is he letting go of the toy? And you have to look very closely, but if you look close enough, what you'll find is that as he looked up, he saw an object. It happened to be a white dove with its fluttering wings that was going toward him. And what he did is he let go of the toy because there was something that got his attention that would be better. We only can lay aside the weights that are hindering us as God's people if we see that there's something better. And we can only grasp that which we need when we have empty hands. Did you know the word consecrate in the Old Testament? You know what it literally means? Those that consecrated their offerings, they filled their hands. What we have to do is to let go of the weights that are in our hands that are not contributing to our spiritual vitality. Let them go. But the Lord promises and he has things that are better for us and more fulfilling. And when we have those things, we're not hindered in the race. And then there's the sin. I believe it's pretty obvious that as he's teaching so exhaustively about walking by faith, that the sin is the sin of unbelief. Not trusting God to do what he said he would do. And therefore, it will be a drain on us if we do not trust him and what we're to do. We will not be experiencing God's best if that is the case. It also, as the passage goes on to say in verse 2, well, let's continue reading verse 1. Let us lay aside every weight, the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Here's another part of the recipe for overcoming spiritual fatigue. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who would, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has set down the right hand of the throne of God. We need to understand that that word looking there really implies a focused looking. It really means to look away to him. In other words, to look away to him means you have to look away from what you're looking at currently and look focused on him. How do we do this looking? Of course, I think that we do this looking by spending time with him. We have to be a people that are purposed in our heart, that we're going to read our Bible, we're going to pray to him. When church attendance is afforded us, we, may, we avail ourselves to it because we want to meet with him. In a sense, all three of those activities are looking away unto him. And when we do that, we can run the race as we should. We're not overcome with fatigue. What are the benefits of looking away unto him? One of the things that is true, and it ties into overcoming this weariness in spiritual activity, is that when we do this, we will not overestimate our own sufferings. If you look in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 3, 
For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. You know, it is the most easy thing for us to do in times of our difficulty to, to become introspective. To begin to think only about what we're going through. And the opposite is what we're instructed to do here. We're instructed to look at him, consider our sufferings in the light of what he has suffered. In other words, don't overestimate your sufferings. And the one who is walking with spiritual vitality is able to do such things. They're not egocentric. They're not focused on themselves. They have an object that's greater. And part of that object, that is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, suffered and he did resist against sin, and sin resisted against him. He did strive to the point where his blood was shed. He suffered more than you will ever suffer. Look to him. Get your own sufferings in perspective. And this is the perspective you should use. We also note that we... Read that passage in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 12 where we're told that we're to lift up the hands that hang down and strengthen the feeble knees. And one of the ways that you look at that is that, well, the child of God is to be the one to do that work. We have a phrase that we've used for years all of my lifetime, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But you know that is not what this passage is teaching us. There's something remarkable about this instruction in the book of Hebrews in the sense that it is not isolated in its New Testament um, environment. In other words, let me say it this way. The New Testament epistles are written to saints who only know one type of Christian living when it comes to the aggregate. They only know what it is to live as saints when they, as they come together as saints. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ that was so ably presented this morning in its definition of what it is and what it is not, exists not simply as an organizational structure. It exists as a living organism designed by our great God for purposes that are eternal but are very practical. And one of the practical aspects of the New Testament church is that when the saint is struggling with spiritual fatigue and weariness, they are not required to go out there and just pull themselves up by the bootstraps. They have others to help them. And so this passage, Hebrews 12 and verse 12, is actually an Old Testament quotation. And if you look back at the Old Testament, the meaning becomes clearer. If you want to turn with me to Isaiah 35, <laughs> verse 3. Isaiah 35 and verse 3. Strengthen ye the weak hands. Confirm 
the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. And certainly that has its own context. But the New Testament writer brings it to the forefront for the struggling saint so that he understands that those that are around you in this assembly, they love you and they can help you. You're struggling, they can be of help to you. And then we find ourselves, when we are not in this state of spiritual fatigue, asking ourselves, are we doing what we should do as an assembly to help one of our brothers or sisters in that assembly as they struggle? We don't live in isolation in New Testament assemblies. This is a body. Then we note also that there are other passages that speak of this same sense in which the New Testament assembly is engaged in helping those who are struggling as they walk with the Lord. And friends, that happens. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15, <clears throat> looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. And let me, let me just make this hopefully helpful observation. Unfortunately, oftentimes God's people look at other saints to find their failings so that they can criticize them. That should be the furthest thing from our mind. If you're going to look diligently and you see a brother or sister who's struggling, you don't look diligently to find them struggling so that you can tell some other people about how bad they are in their struggle. You look diligently so that you can find some way to help. He goes on to say this, <clears throat> lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. And we'll have more to say about that in just a moment. But then he goes on to say, and again, we're talking about saints here. Don't, don't let that escape you. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Now we'll leave the word fornicator alone for a moment. Alone. I'm not going to touch it. Not that it's not worthy of being discussed, but I am telling you that we maybe can better relate to Esau as being a profane person. What is profanity? All my life I've heard profanity is to take the Lord's name in vain. Esau was a profane person. What did he do? Here he had this spiritual birthright that was his. And what he said, it means nothing to me. The spiritual things are less important than the material things. Listen, saints can get in that position where the world and its attractions have, have captivated them for a while and they begin to look at the material things and the spiritual things begin to go to the wayside. You'll see it. Church attendance becomes sporadic. They cannot share with you 
their experiences of the quiet times that they have alone with the Lord and how he, he reveals certain things. They just won't be able to tell you that because they have become profane. And these are the people that you look out for, not in order that you might exclude them, but in order that you might help them. And then in chapter 10, verse 24, and consider this, this idea of spiritual fatigue and how to overcome it and understand that you're not in this battle alone, but there are other saints in that assembly that ought to be helping any of us. And I say us. Because let me tell you, even preachers grow spiritually weary. There are others in the assembly that can help us. But notice in chapter 10 and verse 24, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Just recently I went to have a, a doctor's appointment and in the appointment, as, as the doctor left, the uh, person who was helping me wrap things up, we were talking about our children, and one of her sons, and, or her son, and one of our sons went to school together, and I asked about how the son was doing, and she shared with me, uh, without any specific details, that he was struggling, he was having some problems. So he's in his early 20s, having some, some issues, and that's understandable. But in the course of that, we began to talk about how we can help this young adult. And the dynamics have changed. Because when they were under our wings and they were younger, we could simply tell them, this is what you're to do. But now being an adult, what we have to do is we have to come alongside of them and, as it were, put our arm around them around them and say, this is the way. Would you walk in it? And this is the idea in this passage. We exhort one another. So much more as we see the day approaching, but it's not like we're coming to dictate to a brother who's experiencing spiritual fatigue that you, know, you shouldn't be doing this, but rather putting our arms around them and helping them as they walk in the way. Well, let's go back to that passage in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15 very quickly. Notice again it says, Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. So oftentimes you hear that passage uh, being explained as if there's this individual who has this bitterness within them, and so that person with the bitterness needs to be one who gets rid of the bitterness. But the idea is that the person themselves, for whatever reason, may not be bitter, but they have walked so straight or far from the Lord that their influence in the assembly is toxic. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Deuteronomy. I believe that it is. Yes, chapter 29. And again, the passage in Hebrews is a reference to this Old Testament passage in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verses 18 through 19. 
lest there should be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turneth away this day from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations. Lest there should be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood, and it come to pass when he heareth the words of this curse that he bless himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, though I walk in the imagination of mine heart to add drunkenness to thirst. The idea here is that the individual who has turned away from the Lord is infecting the entire congregation. So it is in our best interest as an assembly to be aware that this person exists and work with them, pray for them, help them to overcome this difficulty that they're having. So as they're walking, again, renewed back into fellowship with him, the assembly is better off. Spiritual fatigue, though, can lead a person to this place where they'll be defiled and they will infect the entire sin. We also noted this passage that the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 that the Christian experience is one where there are calls to action. Years ago, there was a saying that was common, commonly known and heard among Christians. At least I heard it. I guess that makes it somewhat common. It eventually gets to me. Let go and let God. Just let go and let God do everything. Well, there is a sense in which we're to submit to him, but you understand that there are obligations that are placed upon him, us as his people, that we cannot ignore. And in Hebrews chapter 12, we're told that we are to put aside and we are to run. Both of those things are calls to action. We are required then to exercise this God-given ability of the will and to do those things that we are required to do. In the New Testament, as you know, as the, the Lord sends the gospel out, it is more than just the preaching of the gospel, individuals believing the gospel, and then the, the, the men that are sent out, they go away. They stay. They teach. They help. And then they move on as the Lord leads. But then sometimes they come back to the same place. And when they come back, the people there need to be exhorted to continue doing something. And in Acts chapter 11 and verse 22, I read these words. Then tidings of these things came into the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem. They sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch, who when he came, he had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they should cleave unto the Lord. In other words, we should not, if we want to get out of this spiritual fatigue that we may be in, we should not only resolve that we're going to pray, but we should pray. We should not only resolve that we're going to read our Bible, but we should read our Bible, you see. We should have both things, but it starts 
with the resolve, I will do this. Lord, I may be struggling now, and I don't know when I'm going to get out of this condition, but I know there's some things that can help me that you prescribe in your word. I will do it until you help me. And this is what this man Barnabas goes to these churches with purpose of heart, cleave to the Lord. And we should be the same people. And we are told to do that, not without example. The Lord Jesus purposed in his heart to do certain things for us. And one of these sayings in John chapter 17, verse 19, speak precisely to his attitude. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. We need to understand that God's obligations that He gives to us are given to us in order to help us. And in this matter of spiritual fatigue, if we do what He tells us to do, there's help. But we have to do it. We're living in a day, just just like our parents did, they lived in a day that their parents had not seen. We're living in a day that our, nobody in history has seen some of these things. I know you've heard of artificial intelligence. <clears throat> Here's an example of artificial intelligence that impacts me every Sunday morning. So, um, I have a routine on Sunday. <laughs> you, I, I know you can appreciate that. I go to church on Sunday. I go to a specific place where our church is on Sunday. When I walk down my three steps to my back door and I get into my vehicle and I happen to check my phone one last time, you know what pops up? Directions to Grace Missionary Baptist Church. Now, who told this phone to tell me that? Well, it's, it's an example of artificial intelligence. What has happened is, is that somebody has programmed something that tells the computer, hey, do this for me. Monitor their precise location. Monitor the time of day. Monitor the day of the week. And by the way, if you see any patterns associated with that day of the week, the time of the day, and the GPS location, then anticipate what they're about to do and tell them something to help. That's precisely what artificial intelligence is. The computer that's out there in the cloud has learned what I do. And by the way, on, during the week, it doesn't tell me that. And another thing, during the week, when I get off of work, it knows that I typically will open up my phone again and I'll go to YouTube to listen to a message for the next 15 minutes. So guess what pops up? YouTube. That's artificial intelligence. Let me take it one step further. I'm not here to teach a technology lesson, but there's a, there is an advancement being made in this artificial intelligence, and they call it AGI, 
artificial God intelligence. And what they're doing there now is that they're, they're capturing images of people, their voice, and they're programming it in such a way, and this has already happened in certain parts of the world, where when the person dies, you can actually call up that person and there'll be their face with their voice and you can carry on an interaction. Artificial God intelligence, an attempt, suddenly and probably uninformed by the person that's doing it, to lessen the impact of death and to get us away from depending upon the Lord to help us to get through such things. Third example. Now there's something called Chat GPT. What that does, as I understand it, is it allows you to ask this application a question to do something for you, and it will do it. And the illustration I heard is that this person was interacting with Chat GPT, <laughs> and they said, Write me a sermon about Moses. And guess what it did? It wrote a sermon about Moses. Tell the story of my life. And it came up with an essay about the story of this person's life. Here's my point in saying all of this. We're living in an age where the technology is helping us so much that if we're not careful, we will not do what we're required. We are required to read our Bible. We are required to do the hard work for sermon preparation. We are required to weep before Him. We are required to cry out before Him. We are required to pray, to seek His face. All of those things that we have, the technology says that we can do this for you, but it will never be the right thing to do. The only way that we're going to be helped is to follow God's recipe for getting over spiritual weariness. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, laying aside the weights and every sin which does so, and the sin which does so easily besets. Here's another help. And this goes to church fatigue. You know that churches can grow weary. There's a passage also in the book of Hebrews that speaks to that. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. This will be the last of our passages this morning. Let's just read it. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. And of course, this is still in the context of giving instructions to help those who are spiritually weary. Now, let me see if I can help us understand this and how it applies. Literally, <clears throat> The wording should be this. If you have a different uh, marginal reading or a different translation, it may read like this. Remember them who have had the rule over you. He's not saying think about those who are currently ruling over you. 
But think about those who did have the rule over you. And by this time, as the writer of the book of Hebrews is writing to these saints, there's been enough time to pass where the men that were overseeing them have already gone on to glory. They have another set of men in place. And when they have another set of men in place, they are encouraged to look back upon those who were overseers of theirs in the, the past if they were faithful and true to them and there was a time of spiritual vitality, remember them. And here's the catch. Remember them in order to just long for those days. They tell me that at First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, by the way, at one time, in a span, I think, of 104 years, they had two pastors. George W. Truitt and W. A. Criswell. When Criswell became pastor, because Truitt was so well respected, they began that every year, one Sunday a year, they would set aside to remember George W. Truitt. And to my knowledge, that went on for his entire ministry. But why? Is it just a wistful longing for the past? Would that help us? Here's the phrase, verse 8. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's it, my friend. What he's done for others, he'll do for you. You have a faithful man that in the past you were vigorous as a church, you were growing and that kind of thing. Your pastor can be the same thing for you. The elders that are there can be the same thing for you. When you look back at what he has done, consider that God, the God of this man is the same God of your pastor and your assembly. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And friends, when we begin to see him for who he is, and know that He can do for us what He's done for others, then the weariness that we may be experiencing can go away. And we can live as the Christian is to live, with vitality, with vigor, walking by faith, regardless of circumstances, not overestimating our suffering, but viewing them in the proper light. All of those things that the Lord would have us to do are entirely possible. And all of the things that are required to get us to that point, the Lord has given us. May the Lord help us to be overcomers.